So, Julia, before we even begin, where are you right now? Well, um, I'm in Nairobi, Kenya, and I'm standing in front of this huge billboard. It's kind of bright blue, and there's this guy on it. He has a little mustache. Um, He's an Indian Kenyan guy, and on his billboard it says, When men of God are in authority, the people rejoice. And then in big parentheses it says, Brother Paul, and then his real name up top, Kamlish Putney. And, and this billboard, it's, it's pretty big? Yeah, it's like two stories tall. You can't miss it. And so this guy on the billboard, Kamlish Potney, he has a history. Yeah, he definitely has a history. We're talking about him because he ran one of the biggest, if not the biggest, financial scams in Kenya's history. And his scam single-handedly kicked off the country's worst bout of inflation in the triple digits destroyed the country's credibility with creditors, and essentially doubled Kenya's national debt. This one guy was responsible for all of that? Well, he set it all in motion. He had help, but yeah, he, he has a lot of chutzpah, this guy. And I didn't mention the most amazing part. His scam ended up costing the country about 100 billion Kenyan shillings, which was, at the time, about 10% of the country's GDP. 10% of the country's GDP. If we put that in U.S. terms, it's like if Bernie Madoff had lost not just a couple tens of billions, but one and a half trillion dollars. Yeah, it's crazy. So it does seem odd that there is a building-sized picture of his face on a billboard along the freeway in Kenya. Yeah, this is very odd. You, you see his face everywhere. Not only was this guy not arrested, today it's voting day here in Kenya. They're voting for the president. They're voting for parliament. And Kamlesh Patnin, the guy on the poster, is running for a seat in parliament. When all is said and done, tomorrow he could be one of the country's elected representatives. And that seems like a perfect place for us to introduce the show today, Julia. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Julia Simon, a reporter here in Kenya. Today on the program, how Kamlesh Patnin managed to avoid prison and rebrand himself as a man of God. And the details of how he managed to pull off one of the largest financial scams in Kenyan history. So, Julia, the, the story that we're telling today, the story of Kamlesh Patni, it involves many people. It involves Patni himself. It involves a Kenyan government that was riddled with corruption. It involves a lonely whistleblower. And it involves some pretty elaborate games involving banks and monetary policy. It started with a crisis. Kenya had always gotten by with loans from the Western world. Kenya was one of the West's only allies in Africa. But then the Berlin Wall came down and Kenya just wasn't as important and the loans stopped. So $350 million, which the government was expecting as part of the budget, was not there. This is Peter Waroteri. He's an economist in Nairobi. And notice he says dollars. This is important. Kenya, of course, has its own currency, Kenyan shillings. But to buy the stuff they needed from the rest of the world, things like gas and toothpaste, they needed dollars and other foreign money. One way to get dollars is sell stuff that the rest of the world wants to buy. So in the early 90s, the Kenyan government put this policy in place. If you were a Kenyan export business, for every $100 of foreign money you brought into the country, the government would give you an additional $20 worth of Kenyan shillings. A huge incentive, a 20% bonus for every export. That's how desperate the government was for foreign money. And this is where the guy on the billboard, Kamlesh Patni, enters our story. 
Terry Ryan worked in the Kenyan Ministry of Finance at the time, and he remembers his boss, the Minister of Finance, calling him into his office and saying, We have a proposal here for a way of solving the foreign exchange. Um, Could you give an opinion? The proposal came from the man on the poster, Kamlesh Potney, who was at the time a very charming businessman in his mid-20s. His family was originally from India, but they'd been living in Kenya for generations, and they were jewelers. And Potney claimed to the Kenyan government he was starting a new company, a gold and diamond export company, which was named Goldenberg. Just the kind of thing the Kenyan government was looking for, a higher value export than the traditional Kenyan exports like tea and coffee. And so the Kenyan government cut a deal with Goldenberg, an even sweeter deal than the 20% incentive that they were giving to the other exporters. Goldenberg would get 35%. Potney, in a letter, promised that Goldenberg would give the Kenyan government $50 million a year. So in 1990, the Kenyan government signed the deal, and Goldenberg was up and running. The trouble is that, as far as I'm aware, Kenya didn't have any gold mines or gold industry. This is Michaela Rong. She's a British author who lived in Kenya for many years and has written about Goldenberg. She points out what many people who have looked at this scandal point out. This should have been the first clue something was wrong with Goldenberg. It was claiming to export something that did not exist in Kenya. But Terry Ryan in the finance ministry says, we knew that. We just figured they were smuggling the gold in from somewhere else. Gold has been smuggled through Kenya from time immemorial. Um, It comes mainly from DRC, which was at that time uh, Zaire. And... um, Wait a second. So you you always knew that Kenya didn't have gold? You were just... Oh yes, oh definitely. <laughs> I mean, we knew that. That there was no no question whatsoever. Um, so, so, how could the government have been willing to pay for gold that they knew was smuggled? Um, if you have no foreign exchange, I assure you, you will look for it wherever you can, because the alternative of not having foreign exchange is not having petrol to run your motor cars, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the Kenyan government accepts this plan that they know involves the smuggling of gold. But the problem is this imperfect last-ditch plan was even more imperfect than they thought. Because? There wasn't even smuggled gold. There was no gold. Here's Peter Warutere. He's The Economist. There was nothing being exported. It was just doing paperwork. Just by, by filling the paperwork and ensuring that all the authorities that were supposed to verify that uh, these goods were exported, uh, you know, stamped the papers. All they required were the stamps on the papers without exporting anything. So this is obviously crazy. You've got this company selling non-existent gold for non-existent dollars and taking a very real bonus from the government. And all Potney needed to do was get a couple people in some government office to stamp some papers for him. There had to be other people in on the scam, people in the government. Yeah. In fact, to this day, we don't know how many. We do know the guy who co-owned Goldenberg with Putney was high up in the Kenyan government. He was the top cop, the head of the Kenyan security service. And he was a really scary guy. I mean, he could make you disappear and torture your family. So, yes, there was government involvement. Okay, so the government's playing along, but the banks are actually starting to get suspicious because... Not only was there no gold, but there was no foreign money showing up in these banks' accounts. Or if it did show up, it showed up in these really weird ways. For instance, they're saying, well, we've got the foreign exchanges come, but it's in travelers' checks and it's in all 
traveler's checks for paying for gold? That doesn't sound right. And this is the point where the scam is teetering on the brink of being discovered. And this is also the point where a normal person might have conceded that the jig was up, given up, gotten out, but not Kamlesh Patni. He decides to go even bigger. Patni then says, well, because of all the complications of this, the best thing to do is if I had my own bank, that would then solve the problem. It definitely solved Putney's problem. But once the Kenyan government actually fulfilled his request and gave Putney a license to start his own bank, that is where the real mischief starts. The, the biggest scandal actually happened when he started the bank. When they started the bank, they started going to mega scandals. Mega scandals. You give a demonstrated scam artist his own bank, he can do a lot of damage. The original Goldenberg scandal made money off of fake gold. But once Putney had his own bank, he could make money off of fake money. And Putney and his new bank embarked on a lot of new scams. There was writing fake checks, he was financing a hotel development with fake money, but one of the biggest and most damaging scams was one he ran involving Kenyan treasury bills. Kenya at this time had massive inflation, in part because the Kenyan government was having to print real money to pay for all the fake gold Putney claimed to be exporting. But regardless, because of inflation, government treasury bills were paying a huge interest rate. Nobody's going to believe this, but we were actually paying 83% on a 91-day bill, uh, treasury bill. We checked. It's actually 82%, but still, you get the idea. 82% on a three-month treasury bill. To compare, a three-month U.S. treasury is paying 0.07%. Kenya, 82%. You could almost double your money in three months. And if you have your own bank, this situation with high inflation is a perfect opportunity to run a big scam, which Patney did. And here's how it would work. He would say to the Kenyan government, hey, I just put a bunch of U.S. dollars in your bank account in New York City or London or wherever. And I'd like to exchange those dollars for Kenyan shillings. Now, don't worry, Kenyan government, you'll be getting the paperwork in a few weeks. But I would like my shillings now. The Kenyan government says, sure. So he's just turned fake dollars into real shillings. He uses the shillings to buy real Kenyan treasuries. Real Kenyan treasuries, which, remember, are paying 82 percent in three months. And so three months later, he's nearly doubled the money. And during this time, someone in the government says, hey, those dollars that you deposited, they never arrived. You got to pay us back those shillings we gave you, plus a three percent penalty. So Patney says, oh, I'm so sorry. Absolutely. Here's the original money plus the 3% penalty. But remember, during this time, Patney has made 82%. So he pockets the entire difference. And he didn't have to spend a dime. The Kenyan government, it's estimated, gave Patney's bank hundreds of millions of Kenyan shillings in the scam, the equivalent of tens of millions of U.S. dollars, money Patney pocketed without spending one real cent. It was all for moving fake money around. And it might have been more if it weren't for one guy, one guy who caught wind of what was going on, our whistleblower. His name was David Munyake. Author Michaela Rong met David Munyake in late 2005, and he told her about how he started working at the Central Bank of Kenya. What had happened is he had joined uh, the Central Bank as a young man, uh, a fairly lowly job, a clerk, um, and had found himself processing a lot of these forms that um, were granting export compensation to firms that were supposed to be shipping gold abroad. So in that very first scam, the one with the fake gold, Munyake was the guy who was processing the paperwork that was paying Goldenberg 
their 35% bonus. Yeah, that was him. He began to notice that all the forms were identical. He was actually processing the same forms. The, the entries had been tipexed over very crudely. What, what's tipexed? Oh, tipex is whitener. So whitener had been used to change the numbers, but essentially these were the same forms. Um, and so he was processing forms which involved billions of shillings in payments. And the thing that made him very suspicious is he was being asked to go late at night, stay on, um, and it was all very hush-hush, and it was kind of like, don't talk to anyone about what we're doing here. And I think he began, began to realise there was some massive scam going on and that he was a part of it, and that bothered him. So he reported it. Munyake photocopied these documents as proof, and he brought them to the opposition political parties and the local newspapers, and they publicised the scam. And that was the end of Goldenberg. Less than three years after it began, it was shut down in 1993. But not without devastating the Kenyan government. The government lost so much money that the country was plunged into a recession. The national debt nearly doubled. And Professor Terry Ryan says that hit ordinary Kenyans. In the end, they're the ones who will pay for this. It affected the interest rates. It affected the tax rates. It affected all the sorts of things. And the grandchildren are going to have to pay for them. Um, defaulting on debt is just bad. You, you, somebody's got to pay for it. Grandchildren, <laughs> right? Um, that is is the dominant, the dominant residual bad, and that's still with us. All told, economists estimate that the total cost of the Kenyan economy is a billion dollars. U.S. dollars. Yeah, and when you see a graph of the Kenyan economy, you see this big dip in 1993. And that dip, that is Kamlesh Patni. But no one connected with the scandal was ever convicted. Not Patni, not any of his cronies. There were several trials. There was also a government commission which produced a big report. But no one went to jail. No one got dragged away in handcuffs. There was no Bernie Madoff moment where the country gets its revenge. Although there was one guy who paid a price. David Munyake, the whistleblower. For revealing the scam, for being the one guy to do his job? He was sacked. He lost his job. Um, and then he began to get death threats, some of them from his former colleagues at the central bank who were saying, you better disappear. And, and that's what he did. He left town, changed his name, married a woman from the coast, pretty much laid low, eventually became a farmer in a poor, dusty part of Kenya. And in 2006, he caught pneumonia and he died. He was young, 38, and broke. And he left behind his wife and his three kids. And that, sadly, is the lesson to any potential whistleblower. Exposing corruption, it does not end well. So this is the sound of a recent Sunday at Hope International Church. And there are thousands of people here in this big blue tent-like structure, singing, clapping, little kids in their Sunday bests. And up above all the congregants is this big poster of this guy with a mustache, the guy from the billboard. Oh, wait, I know. Kamlesh Patni. The man himself. This is his church. After the scandal, he said he found God, converted to Christianity, and built this place. I came looking for him, but he wasn't there that day I went. And I should say I spent a lot of time trying to talk to Putney. I went through his political party, his assistants. I had interviews scheduled with him two separate times, once in his casino in Nairobi. Wait, wait, casino? 
Oh, yeah. He has a bunch of casinos. He has a bunch of businesses. He is not a poor preacher. So, yeah, I went to the casino. He didn't show another time at his office boardroom where there are photographs of him all over the walls with these different African leaders, including Muammar Gaddafi. And again, I waited five hours that time and he never showed. Which is sort of surprising since this guy was also, as we mentioned, running for office for parliament. He must have had to answer some of these questions about this giant scam that sank the country at some point during his campaign, didn't he? He actually really didn't. I mean, there was this Kenyan TV interview, and you if you watch it, you can see he didn't really directly answer the questions. He just says that a lot of the allegations are hearsay, and that he feels like now, as a Christian, his soul is clear. And people do seem to believe him, some people. I mean, I talked to this guy named Eric Wanambizi. He's an elementary school teacher, and he showed up at 3.30 in the morning on election day and waited five hours to cast his vote for Putney. He's, he's, very much, he's very much in touch with that person who is down, no, down, down, down. He wants to bring this person out of that pit. And that is why my heart is overwhelmed, and I think he's uh, one guy who deserves this thing. Have you heard about... Um this thing called uh, Goldenberg, have you heard of it? Of course. This is a scandal that uh, it was alleged that Patton was involved. Uh, but uh, if it was a genuine case, then the court would have uh, found him guilty. He went through court trials several times, and the court did not find any, any legal purpose to sue him. So you, um, you don't think he did anything wrong? Absolutely not. Partly, he came up very clearly to face these guys and tell them, I did not. You hear this a lot, and a lot of people say, listen, the president at the time, Daniel Arup Moy, he was the one who was really in charge. Putney is just a scapegoat. Even if he did do some bad things in the past, that's not important. What is important is that he's changed. He's confessed his sins to God. And there's one other thing going on here. In that neighborhood where I met Eric Wanambizi, it's called Kangemi, and it's a slum. I mean, many Kenyans are still very, very, very poor, living on a dollar a day or less. And Putney, when Putney was on the campaign trail, he would go and visit these people and hand out gifts, food, flour, and even money, says Eric Wanambizi. Uh, he does also where I need to be, where I need to be. He's there for them, and he has also initiated a program of, of, of even uh, paying some of them, paying rent to some of them. Is that illegal? No. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, uh, campaign, according to the Constitution, it is illegal. The Constitution interprets as if as, as corruption, as if uh, you, you are buying the vote. It is illegal. But, yes, but, but, but uh, partly he does not buy you votes because he's a kind of a person... Who, who is ready to listen to your problem. Uh, if the problem touches his, his heart, he's ready to get in his pocket and help you according to your need, but not to buy your vote. The fact that voters like Eric Wanambizi look up to Putney and want to vote for him, the fact that he's a pastor with a church with thousands of people, the fact that at Putney's trial, little kids went up to him to try to get his autograph, Author Michaela Rong says it tells you a lot about modern Kenya. 
Patney, in many Kenyans' eyes, is a bit of a sort of scoundrel, but he's admired. He's widely admired for what he did. He's regarded as having pulled off something remarkable. And instead of being, you know, uh, humiliated and outcast by the society, he, he continues to thrive here. And when I talk about it with Kenyan friends, it really disappoints them to see Putney up there on those huge posters. It makes them feel like all those messages they got as kids to work hard and that's how you'll be successful, that that's just a myth. That the guys who make it in Kenya are the schemers, the fraudsters, the thieves. These are the ones who are rewarded and these are the ones who win. And this belief, if it's pervasive enough, can have serious economic consequences. In societies where corruption becomes endemic, it's hard for them to grow. Why should citizens work hard coming up with new products or inventing a great new business if none of that matters? And the only way ahead is by cheating and bribery. And this is a tension you feel in Kenya today and lots of developing countries. And yet people do work hard and continue to have hope for Kenya. You have massive companies like Google and IBM setting up shop. You have the Kenyan economy, which, except for a brief dip during the Goldenberg years, has been growing at a pretty good clip for the last 15 years. And you have this fact. The election for the Kenyan parliament is over. The results are still not final, but we do know this. Even with all his wealth and his popularity, Potney did not win a seat in parliament. No, he didn't. And in the slums before the elections, when Putney came around and gave out money, there were plenty of people who took the money and then didn't vote for him. Because as one guy told me, that money he gave us, it's our money. As always, we invite you to check us out online, planetmoney.com, or you can write to us at planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Alex Bloomberg. Julia, you want to take us out? Sure. And I'm Julia Simon. Thanks for listening. Dunia ni zamishi